Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. We're here today on Maundy Thursday, the Thursday that Jesus is betrayed by Judas the, the, after they've eaten what we believe to be the Passover meal. We celebrate Maundy Thursday in a variety of ways. The reason it's called Maundy Thursday is that word Maundy is short for the Latin word mondatum, and it means commandment. Because on this night, Jesus says to the disciples, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so when Jesus says that, there's something new introduced into the world. Is there really? Love one another? It's always been a commandment, right? I mean, but it's, it's odd that, that the one who gives the commandment is himself the word of God. And he gives a commandment is a very strange idea because God gives commandments, but Jesus gives a commandment here. The Jews have 613 laws that they find in the Bible. Is that not enough, Jesus? You have another commandment to give us? And so he commands them to love one another as he has loved them, but he's not through loving them. He's not through showing them the extent of his love for them. As much as he's loved them and protected them as they've been his friends these last three years, the greatest act of love remains, the giving up himself on the cross in atonement for not their sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The greatest act of love that's ever been made. And it happens on this strange night, this night called Passover, the night when the Jews commemorate the redemption of the nation from the land of Egypt where they've been enslaved. The place where their children had been slaughtered, their own firstborn sons slaughtered as soon as they were born by the Egyptians because they thought they were going to be too numerous for them and they wanted to further subjugate them and prove whose they were. And so they commanded the midwives to kill sons who were born. And now, after God's shown himself in the first nine plagues, he has shown himself to be more powerful than the gods of Egypt, more powerful than Pharaoh himself. Comes that fateful night, Passover when he tells the Hebrews to go into their homes, take a lamb, have it in their home three days prior. In those three days, it becomes part of the family. They feed it. They take care of that lamb inside the home for three days. And on the third day, they slaughter those lambs. And they do some things in obedience to the commandment. They take a hyssop branch and they paint the doorposts, top, side, and across the bottom with the blood of that lamb. And they're protected by the blood of that lamb when God passes over the people of Israel and takes the firstborn sons of Egypt. 
the same thing they had done to God's people, God now does to them. But not before giving them nine demonstrations of his power. He glorified himself nine separate times in the sight of uh, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. They had an opportunity to repent. All Pharaoh had to do was let my people go. No, he mocked God. He treated God as though he were nothing in spite of all the demonstrations of power that he had done. He treated him as though he were nothing at all. And he enslaved God's people nine separate times with great plagues. God showed himself to Pharaoh. He showed himself to the Egyptians. And those plagues got increasingly worse. And increasingly, another thing happens. And that is, is, is that the plagues then suddenly draw a distinction between God's people, the Israelites, and Pharaoh's people the Egyptians. Some of the plagues begin falling only on the homes, the livestock of the Egyptians, not on the people who live out in the land of Goshen, the people who are there tending their flocks, the Israelites, God's people, the ones that Moses has said, let my people go. And still Pharaoh persists in enslaving the people and making their lives more and more miserable in spite of the fact that he can see that he's run up against the greatest power on earth, but he refuses to repent. He refuses to stop believing that he is greater than God and that he can treat God's people any way that he likes without ever suffering for it, in spite of the fact that his people suffered horribly. The Nile, the lifeblood, as it were, of Egypt turned to blood not able to use it to water their flocks and to water their fields. Their livestock destroyed in hailstorms. And still, he doesn't care about his people. But at the same time, you can begin to see God cares about his people because he protects his people from those plagues. Draws this great distinction where darkness, so thick and heavy it can be felt, it is across the land of Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen. There's daylight there. Day and night. The distinction between God's people and not God's people. And continuously, they fail to repent. They fail to recognize him, turn to him, and let his people go. And so the plague of the firstborn comes. But only after. They had nine separate opportunities to witness God's power, witness his glory, and bend the knee and let his people go. Didn't have to be this way. It was a choice. It's one of the things that I think we frequently don't understand when we say things like, why would a good God send people to hell? The answer is he doesn't. We choose it. By rejecting him, by rejecting the evidence of our eyes, by rejecting the evidence of others, and we reject him and we choose our own hell by rejecting him. Happens this night as Jesus and the disciples gather in the upper room and they have the Passover meal. We have the, the great Passover Seder now that's fraught with huge symbolism. As Christians, when we go through a Passover Seder, it's easy to see. 
Jesus. It's easy to see the true meaning of the Passover. We don't know if the Passover Seder of Jesus' time was as formalized as the ones that we have today, but be that as it may, it's celebrating, commemorating the deliverance of God's people. Mingled with that celebration, though, is always supposed to be one other thing, and that one other thing that's supposed to be in that celebration, as it were, is the remembrance, the horror, the pity, the grief, and the remorse for what happened to the Egyptians. They're especially told, do not celebrate the fact that the firstborn of the Egyptians died this night. That is not something to be celebrated. It's something to be mourned. For they too were created in the image of God. They were given an opportunity to see. And again, things didn't have to be this way. That's the theme, really, for Holy Week. Things didn't have to be this way. They didn't have to go this way, but they did because God was rejected. This time it was God's people who were going to reject him. Jesus had come into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey, the Sunday before, and now here four days later. He gathers with his disciples, and all the other pilgrims are all gathered in their places all throughout Jerusalem. Families gather, and they eat the Passover meal, the same meal that their ancestors ate that same night. And they commemorate that night by remembering on this night what God did, and they tell the story. And they tell it in a very stylized way. It's meant to be done by the youngest child, beginning by asking questions at the meal. Why is this night different from any other night? And then they tell the story in answer to questions. And so that family unit will gather and have that meal and remember the greatness of God, the glory of God, and the goodness of God, remembering that if it were not for him, there would be no Israel. They would be nothing more than a family that had grown quite large in Egypt and then been enslaved because they had grown quite large, because God had blessed their number. And they gather now in the land of Israel, not quite slaves, but not quite free. They're under Roman rule. And so they do what they're allowed to do. And the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, is maintained because they allow this Jewish religion in this place. So it's not really their land. It belongs to Rome. But they're allowed to have their religion. They're allowed to worship their God. It's not the religion of Rome. It's illicit religion in Rome. It's a religion that Rome permitted. And so they're able to have this Passover in their land, which is to be a great celebration. And now, even today, the way the celebrations happen all over the world, it ends with next year in Jerusalem. But you want to be next year in Jerusalem, not as Jerusalem is today, a divided city, a city that doesn't belong to them. The Temple Mount belongs to the Muslims. They want next year in Jerusalem, not like this Passover night, Maundy Thursday night, not like it would be today. They want it next year in Jerusalem where God reigns over all things. And Yahweh is glorified. And his people, the Jews, are his servants. 
and they make him manifest and known to the world while the world comes to learn more about this great God. That's the cry of the heart for next year in Jerusalem. But this night, Maundy Thursday, it's a bittersweet mix of freedom to practice the religion while at the same time being under the rule of another nation in their nation. It's better than being in Babylon. It's better than being in Egypt, but it's not better than it can be. And there's a longing for that messianic king. And so four days before that, one came who was hailed by the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem as Messiah, the son of David. It's interesting if you read some of the gospels, what you hear is this procession begins in Bethany outside the city. But it's that part of the city where, to the Mount of Olives, where Jews can come and keep this pilgrimage and be counted as keeping the pilgrimage because you have to be in Jerusalem. So the borders of Jerusalem are extended to the Mount of Olives during that period of time. And so you camp all over this place. So once you come to Bethany, you have reached, for Passover purposes, the city limits of Jerusalem, but you're not within the walls of Jerusalem yet. And so those crowds who are claiming him begin there. And what you see in the Gospels is as they enter the town, the official religious leaders then begin to tell them to stop. They begin to ask them who it is. And the one who has been son of David, Messiah, outside the city walls now becomes Jesus, the prophet from Galilee. It's a little different. But there's an ominous tone, and then that ominous tone carries through when Jesus goes from there into the temple and drives out the money changers, drives out the sellers of sacrificial animals and says, this is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. Why does he say that? It's because they're doing their business in the place where Gentiles could come and hear about God. The very thing that I just mentioned that is in the Messianic age when, when all people can come to Jerusalem and hear of the wonders of Yahweh. And that's prohibited because they've now moved these sellers of sacrificial animals in there. So there's no way the nations can come. It's not a house of prayer for all people. Those people can't get to it. And so then begins the ominous tone of what is going to come. They resent that. Who, by whose authority do you do these things? And Jesus refuses to tell them. Again, the beginning of what that trial is going to look like when he refuses to answer his accusers. So this night they come and when they gather in that upper room, Jesus does a very bizarre thing right at the beginning, right? He strips to the waist, gets down on the floor, gets water and gets a cloth and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And Peter protests immediately. Wait, wait, wait. You don't do this. I should do it for you. But the reality is, do you know that a Hebrew who sold himself as a slave a Jew to a Jew, it was one thing that that slave, he's a voluntary slave, he sold himself in order to redeem something else, that he can't ever be asked to wash the feet of his master. That's below the ability to ask because they're brothers. Whether they're slaves or not, they're still recognized as Jews. And so you can't ask a Jewish slave to do that. And so Jesus the master kneels at the feet of his disciples and he washes their feet. 
Do you know whose feet he washed? The man called Judas. The one who would betray him. He washed Judas's feet. Again, I think like with Pharaoh, Judas knew what he was going to do. He had it in his heart. Not only that, he had a plan. He'd already gotten the money for it. He had a plan to betray Jesus. We don't know why Judas wanted to betray Jesus. We don't know what he thought would happen, what he wanted to happen. We can psychologize it, but we just don't know is the answer. But we know that he felt remorse later because we know that he tried to give the money back to the temple and they wouldn't take it. They said, no, 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 it's blood money. You did that in order to betray a man to be killed. So, but this night, at the beginning of this, I believe that Jesus does this foot washing thing for their all their benefit, but also as a way to come and humble himself before Judas and wash Judas's feet as an effort for Judas to turn and repent because he's seen the depth of Jesus's love for him, his willingness to serve him. But is that what Judas saw or did Judas just see weakness when he wanted strength, a servant when he wanted a king? We don't know what he saw, but we know that in that service, that night, they're having that meal together. They're remembering God's great redemption. And Jesus says in the middle of this, one of you will betray me. And Peter panicked. Who would do such a thing? And he said, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So he dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He predicted it, said it out loud to Judas. And then Jesus said to him after he'd given him the morsel, what? you're going to do, do quickly. And he did. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And John tells us next, and it was night. It was night when the Passover happened as well. It happened at midnight is exactly what it says. There's a lot of dispute and argument within Judaism scholarly Judaism about what does midnight mean and, and what the not the final answer because there's never a final answer on these kind of disputes but what the answer can tend to be is something like this it splits God's judgment from God's goodness graciousness and, and uh, benevolence towards his people the the judgment against the Egyptians and then the benevolence towards his people the blessedness that he gives to them, the hesed love towards his people. And it splits the world in two, splits the night in two, splits time and eternity into two. There was a time when they were slaves and then there were a time when they were redeemed, but it required God's judgment in order for them to be redeemed. Here we can almost look at it and say those poles are reversed. The judgment will come. And it will come quickly. It will come that night. It probably didn't feel quick for those who were involved in it. But after Judas took the morsel of bread, when Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He left before the cup 
that represents the blood of Christ was given to the disciples. Judas left in between those two things. And he goes and he betrays Jesus. But after Jesus gives the cup, he then says to the disciples, this commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I've loved you. But the fullness of that demonstration of Jesus' love awaits. It awaits the cross, which awaits the resurrection. But this night they're left in suspense. They're left in mystery. They're left only with a new commandment that they don't understand and know they can't fulfill. He has shown them the way of true love. He has shown them the way of servanthood. Little do they know what will happen next. Little do, do they know, little does Peter believe what's going to happen next, that he will betray Jesus himself. He will deny him three times before the cock crows that night, while Jesus in the hour of his greatest need, when he needs a witness to come forward on his behalf, Peter abandons him. None of the others come to his defense either. They're afraid. They don't have faith. They don't know what's to come in spite of the fact that Jesus told them what's to come. But one man, Judas, leaves that table, leaves that room after all Jesus has done for him, all the pleading Jesus did during that night that Judas had to have heard again and again and again. He leaves that room to go and betray Jesus. And he greets him with a kiss in his betrayal. And he says, Hail, Rabbi. And Jesus calls him friend. And then everything goes to pieces. But this night is the night we remember God's great condescension in acting as a servant towards his friends, loving his friends to the end, giving, laying down his life for his friends. And at the end of the meal, at the end of the discussion, they go into the garden together. And in that garden, Jesus takes the three, James, Peter, and John with him to pray. And they can't stay awake. They're so tired. Jesus pours out his soul, great drops of sweat like blood coming from him. Let this cup pass from me, but it, only if it be according to your will. And he agonizes in that garden. But with acceptance, he knows what will be. And no matter what is going to come next, as long as it's the Father's will, all he needs is the strength to bear that. All he needs is to go forward. He's frustrated with the disciples, but who wouldn't be at that moment? I've asked you to pray. Could you not watch with me an hour? And then it comes. And their world is shattered. Chaos reigns. But if you keep an eye on Jesus, through all the chaos, there's one person who's in charge. One person who navigates this thing perfectly. Never succumbs to the chaos keeps his head. We're in a time right now when death is all around us. It's all we hear about all day long on the news, right? We're hearing about the coronavirus again and again and again. Christians, this is your hour. This is your time to do two things. 
love one another in obedience to the commandment Jesus gave this night and keep your head, keep your faith, keep your strength, keep your smile, keep your hope. Jesus passed through much worse than this. We are to bring light into the dark night that we're in right now. And if we do, he will be glorified in us. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green. Thank you for being here tonight. May you have a blessed Easter.